Thanks for tuning in to the Fertility Health Podcast, hosted by renowned fertility specialist Mark Trollis, MD. Each episode features first-hand advice and potential treatment news, tips, and strategies listeners can use on their fertility journey. And now, here's your host, Dr. Trollis. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Fertility Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Trollis, and today I'm really excited about the topic. It's about advocacy, and I recently got the bug because I was honored to be uh, with the PCOS Challenge, the Polycystic Ovary Syndrome Organization, the National Foundation. We were in Washington in March, and I met with legislators, and I just, I, I was, I was so overwhelmed by the excitement of the people participating and and the whole process of what it takes to advocate. And I, and I was also hard on myself for not having done it before. So ASRM, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, is having their advocacy day in May, and I am going to be there. A part of the uh, advocacy uh, is the fact that I wanted to bring on the chief advocate for the American Society of Reproductive Medicine because uh, this is going to be something I think will be inspiring, uh, this, this podcast, but also educational in that finding out where we are right now in getting uh, fertility insurance coverage mandated, which is what I want to talk about, and also for fertility preservation and equal access of care for all people that are trying to build their family. So with me is, is a, uh, just a... Uh, uh, plethora of information. Uh, Sean Tipton is the Chief Advocacy Policy and Development Officer for the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. So when I went after an advocacy person, I went to the top right away. So I'm really, really excited to have Sean with us. He began his tenure with ASRM as the Government Affairs Manager back in the 20, <laughs> back in the 20th century is what he wrote for, with his bio. Uh, I think I'm, I'm, I think that uh, Sean's been involved with this as long as I've been with ASRM or even earlier than that. I'm going to ask him as soon as we bring him on. He executes media and government affairs programs for ASRM. And is the uh, ASRM, uh, for those of you who may not be aware, that is the website. That's the go-to website in the organization for you to learn about uh, fertility and all aspects of reproductive medicine. That website is ASRM.org. And it's the country's leading organization for professionals involved in reproductive health care and infertility. I have been a member since the early 1990s in the 20th century. And uh, he's been involved in nearly every major media and policy event. Uh, for those of you who remember the Macaulay Septuplets, Octomom, uh, Embryonic Stem Cell Research, per personhood uh, that's going on right now with embryos, uh, cloning, uh, he's received awards uh, from his alma mater as well as organizations uh, such as Resolve and uh, Research America. So thank you, Sean, for joining us today. It's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. Oh, you're welcome, Dr. Charles. I'm happy to be with you and your audience. So what got you involved in advocacy uh, way back when? Oh, goodness. Well, I have uh, always been interested in policy and politics and Actually, when I first came to Washington, D.C., I was doing research on how universities 
pursue their policy goals, and I ended up deciding I liked doing that work better than studying it, and then I started working for uh, healthcare in the early 90s and came to the American Society for Reproductive Medicine in 1997. So what, what would you say is the, is the challenge of getting, we'll go right to it, getting mandated fertility coverage uh, across the United States? I know we have, we're all excited about New York, uh, them passing legislation. Why is this such an obstacle, Sean? Well, you know, I would back up a little first and say we don't really want to have laws that mandate this. It's just that we, that seems to be something we're driven to because so many insurance companies and employers don't provide the coverage. So even for the Americans who have otherwise pretty good health care, most health care coverage, most of them do not have access to the full panoply of, of options for reproductive medicine from contraception all the way to infertility care. So uh, we pursue legislative mandates to try to force employers and insurance companies to do things they ought to be doing in the first place. Well, we, right, we, we wish we wouldn't have to do this, but the fact that it is not universally offered to, to patients, why is that not the case? Well, you know, it's hard to say. I, I think part of it is insurance companies, particularly the for-profit ones, are driven to make a profit. So anything they can think they can get away with to deny coverage, they will. Uh, and, and we've seen some evidence of that. And I, and I think in this country, we have a long history of not treating appropriately reproductive disorders and, and reproductive medicine. And so I think it's as simple as we think we can get away with it. And so they try to. Now, there are some truths to dealing with the complicated. It is infertility is not a disease that's going to cause a fatality. It's going to not allow another birth to come into another life to come into being, but it's not going to into one that already exists. And most of the treatments get around the condition of infertility rather than completely treating it. And so you'll hear that as an excuse as well. So I understand about insurance companies that are for profit and they obviously want to make a profit, but studies have shown that if it was universal coverage, that the premium increase of covered lives would be $4 for everybody. You, you, I'm sure you're familiar with that with that uh, literature, and why is that not just a black and white simple argument? I really can't answer that. We have been trying to do, I mean, direct education. We've met with employers, we've met with uh, insurance companies, and in some cases we've had some success, but but oftentimes not. I think for one, uh, the insurance carriers. Like, for instance, if you go to them with the proposal, why don't you cover IVF, but you limit it to single embryo transfer so you don't have multiple births, which can be exactly quite expensive. And that would look like that would be in their short-term financial interests as well as longer-term. And what we have discovered a couple things is they don't care about long-term costs because they figure that employee is going to move on. Um, and even within companies, what we found is the – there's a different budget line for like uh, NICU or neonatal intensive care units where if you have triplets or quadruplets, those children are going. Um, then there is for the women's health line. And so the person in charge of the women's health budget doesn't care about the other costs. So it's, 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 hard, to, it's hard for me to explain because I don't think right. it makes much sense. 
Yeah, no, it doesn't. Uh, you know, in the states that uh, do not have coverage, uh, the physician is much more pressured uh, to increase the number of embryos to transfer, uh, do more aggressive treatment uh, because the patients have limited resources. And that, that really puts everybody at risk. And, uh, and, and also, of course, the, the health uh, risks uh, to, to baby, the time in the NICU, uh, and, and um, uh, outcomes of, of complications. So it's just, uh, just sad. Are you seeing any, any window uh, of opening in terms of fertility preservation in cancer patients or those that have had uh, toxic therapy to, to the testes or ovaries where it really is rather medically induced or, uh, or, or contraindicated for any reason for fertility? Yeah, well, so politically, that seems to be a little easier of an ask because it's such a sympathetic population. You would think that infertile patients are a pretty sympathetic population, but they're not nearly as sympathetic as cancer patients. So, and, and we have examples we can point to. Most insurance plans, for example, cover breast reconstruction for breast cancer patients. So uh, a procedure that costs money that's dealing with uh, an effect of the treatment. And so we simply say it's, it's also logical that you would do the same thing to, to allow them to preserve their ability to have a child. Uh, and that logic seems to be working in a number of states with a number of policymakers. So we're, we think we're making some strides there. It seems like, if I remember, we're dealing with about six states now that, 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 that mandate fertility preservation? Right, and all, and all those states have uh, had existing IVF insurance mandates, so it was just an extension. Um, you know, oh, New I York see. passed them both at the same time. Yeah. So, it's, so it's been easier in states that already had an IVF mandate. We're, we're, we are knocking on some doors, I and mean, we think we're making some progress in Texas, for example, on a fertility preservation mandate. So, mm -hmm. so we think the first of those dominoes will fall hopefully this year or next. Well, I'd love to. Uh, I've already met with representatives here in Florida, and uh, I, I would. Uh, I'm going to pursue that, and I would love uh, to have uh, the ability to join you all in making that happen. Florida is the third largest state in the country. Uh, I, it, it deserves to have better coverage. It's really, it's a shame the, the amount of time uh, for a consultation to spend on the finances of the treatment options as opposed to the medical uh, and psychological components of everything. Right, it's not something most physicians want to do. It's not what they got into the field in order to do. And right. But in, in infertility, it's a reality of the practice that Right. You have to deal with the financial constraints. Right, right, in, in, in the states that don't have the coverage. Let me, let me talk about two different groups, Sean. Uh, what about veterans? You know, you would, say, you would see that these people have risked their lives for their country. Uh, where are we in, in the ability? It seems like there, there's slow gains there, but there's a tremendous amount of stipulations. I mean, you know, an injury that affects their fertility during battle. I mean, that's pretty rare for something like that to happen. What, where, where are you seeing, where are we now with veterans? So, yes, right now, if a veteran has a fertility issue that was, that was caused by a service-related injury, they can get their treatment covered through the VA. And that's models the policy in the Defense Department, so if you're active duty, it's, 
it's the same thing. If your if your infertility was caused by your service, treating so so okay. treat, treating veterans has been a long difficult effort for us that we've been involved in for a long time, and it's, it's fascinating. And if there's a 1992 law on the books that says the VA cannot provide in vitro fertilization care, uh, we have managed in the last four years to pass a new bill when they fund to the government, the appropriations bill, that says previous measure, other measures of law notwithstanding, we're going to let the VA do IVF under these very narrow circumstances. That is, if your fertility problem was caused by your service. So we really need to do a lot better. We're continuing to work with the VA and with Congress and with veterans groups to try to get that situation improved. It has dramatically improved from what it was five years ago, but we still have a long way to go. Yeah, yeah. Why the restrictions, Sean? What, what, what do you think was, was the basis of that law back in 92? Uh, you know, I think in the early 90s, IVF was still a pretty new technology and somewhat more controversial. And so I think somebody must have decided we don't want to have the Veterans Administration messing around with this. Mm-hmm. They, have a, they have a couple other big bureaucratic hurdles as well. Number one, of course, is for a long time, the VA only served men. So it, so the whole concept of any kind of women's health care, let alone reproductive care, fertility care, is a challenge for them. Number two, they are geared up to deal with the veteran. Sometimes, in the case, for example, of a male service member who steps on an IED and suffers damage to his reproductive organs, you're going to be treating the woman as well. You're, you're going to be treating his wife as well. And the VA system doesn't quite understand how they can do that. So you have sort of these just bureaucratic things that we're trying to work our way through, uh, but it's not been an easy process. Let, let's switch over to to a, a population that uh, we have worked very hard for in, in Florida. I mean, we is my my clinic is LGBTQ. Uh, where are the obstacles there, and and where are the gains uh, that are coming from? Well, you know, I think in the in the 20 years that I've been working with ASRM, you've seen a change in terms of, I think we are largely over the legitimacy questions. That is, is it appropriate for single women or couples in same-sex relationships to pursue families? And for the most part, all our members are now on board with that. Now you have another trick of, of paying for those treatments when they're needed, uh, and that can be challenging. And, and you know, one of the Again, it, it's a, it's a, you're trying to deal, work in sort of a heteronormative world and you're trying to have equity without doing special treatment. So, for example, for years we have defined infertility as the inability to conceive or carry a pregnancy if you're otherwise having sexual intercourse. And if you're a same-sex couple, you can have all the intercourse you want and you're not going to produce a child. So you have to think of how to make that definition work for everybody who might want to build a family uh, and maintain some maintain some equity where we get it we get into some questions sometimes of, of should a lesbian couple go directly to IVF uh, when their problem is not necessarily medical infertility but the absence of an appropriate gamete so you have to line up sort of what's appropriate medically and what's appropriate socially and how do you make it all work financially for everybody okay gotcha gotcha so, uh, what, what are you seeing the gains in that? Uh, are, 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 we, are, are the new uh, 
laws that or and new bills that are coming out uh, starting to show uh, improvements? Yeah, absolutely. The the new mandate that was that passed in New York just this past week or so is very clearly going to be helpful to and, and useful for same sex couples. Um, Delaware, which passed in 2018, was also one that, that I think doesn't deal with those problems. We have improved the existing mandate in Maryland to make it to, to make it uh, easier to use for same-sex couples. So uh, I think we're making some strides there. And again, you know, one of the things we're seeing is that unfortunately, sometimes the insurance companies are again are looking for ways not to cover, right. uh, and and so they're they're pretty smart about how to come up with some of those ways and it's yeah. hard to anticipate everything they're going to do and it's kind of clumsy to to use a statute this is part of why we would prefer if people would just do the right thing and then we wouldn't have to compel them legally to do it right right Let, let's switch gears sean and talk about something that's pretty controversial i don't know how much steam is uh, momentum is gaining but this is the personhood uh, laws and and uh, the bills that are trying to be passed and f from what I understand it's it's basically designated an embryo as a person uh, that could possibly have the effects that if we uh, discard an embryo that's even chromosomally abnormal uh, that would violate this could could you just educate us a little bit more right these are measures uh, sometimes state constitutional measures sometimes just to put in state law or sometimes to be in, in federal law which as you say, establish legal personhood, often it's worded at the moment of conception, so that the embryo, whether that's in a woman's body or in a dish or a freezer in a clinic, would be considered a legal person with full constitutional rights. Uh, this is, is this, these sorry. are designed to stop abortion, um, yeah. but they but they could have real impact on infertility care. You can't put. I mean, you can't put a born baby in a freezer. You clearly can put an embryo in a freezer, but if it's uh, considered the same legally, maybe you can't. Um, so, so far we have beaten this. It's been on the ballot box a couple times in Colorado. It's been on the ballot in Mississippi. Uh, the no side has always prevailed and prevailed fairly handily. Uh, we've come close in a couple of legislatures. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, Iowa had a bill that got amended at the last minute to, so it became essentially a personhood measure, and that took some uh, hard, sudden work from us to try to keep that from becoming law. So uh, it, it's it's hard to predict where it's going to pop up, but I mean we're, we certainly live in fear that one of these is going to become law somewhere. We're going to have to deal with it. But it, it uh, since it's been around, and it's what, is it five years or so? Or I think in two, I think we're coming up on over a decade. I believe 2010 was the first year it appeared on the ballot in Colorado. So that would suggest that this is not sweeping the country uh, by by any means, uh, but it's still out there and uh, and something that we would need to contend uh, uh, per state. Right. Uh, it, it's one of the things that makes it difficult is these things can sometimes get going in the middle of the night and be difficult for us to, to anticipate. So right. it's a little scary, yeah. So what's what's on the horizon, or what's on ASRM's radar, Sean, uh, that, that's coming that uh, we may not all be aware of what you're all working on? Well, we always work on research issues. So the, the federal government is a very important funder of medical research, and they often don't do 
justice to reproductive topics. And so we work to try to make sure that the federal agencies who work with us, the research agencies like the National Institutes of Health, NIH, and the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, have the resources they need to be able to improve patient care. There are also some significant, again, driven by by abortion politics, some significant policy barriers that keep the federal government from playing the role it should in reproductive medicine research. So, so we will be looking to try to reverse some of those in the years ahead. Why do you think, Sean, in our remaining moments, uh, why do you think our specialty was selected among all our specialties to have to report statistics to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention? What prompted that to put us all now, as you know, the, the amount of work that's involved uh, from SART to maintain the database to try to uh, facilitate data entry to the individual clinics? I mean, it's a Herculean task. What started all that in your, uh, in, in your understanding? So, I mean, the law was primarily driven as a piece of consumer protection legislation to help people understand what their prospects for success were as IVF was getting going in the early days. Now, I do think it's a little deeper than that. I mean, this is the only medical procedure where the physicians who provide, who do the procedure have to report that they did it and what the outcome was to the federal government. Right. And I think, I, mean, that, yeah. I think that gets into a lot of complicated societal questions about uh, reproduction, about you know how we feel about that. We're a little, you know, we're kind of weird about sex and reproductive topics largely in this country. Now, there's a degree of legitimacy because it's, it's a unique medical procedure in that by definition it involves two patients and the hope is to create a third life. And so that's very different than just a relationship between a physician and a patient dealing just with that one body and one condition. So. So it's a more complicated arrangement, to be sure, and, and that creates some more, some more opportunity for social concern. But I think it does have to do with the stigma that, that surrounds reproduction and sexuality in this country. Hmm. Well, just um, I, I could go on and on. I mean, what, what you do is, uh, is amazing. I can't thank you enough of, of all of your advocacy uh, on behalf of our patients, but also uh, on behalf of physicians, the amount of work that you do to support our our. Uh, efforts at providing the, the best reproductive health care to everyone. Uh, so uh, I wish we had more time to talk, Sean. I thank you so much for, for being a guest on the show, and I hope you'll come back again. Well, I appreciate your kind words, and, and I'd be happy to appear and, and hope to see everybody up in Washington. One last thing I would say is remember, the First Amendment to the Constitution guarantees your right to petition your government to redress of grievances. And if you're dealing with fertility issues, you've got grievances that need to be redressed. So you shouldn't be shy about talking to your congressman. Excellent. I will see you in Washington. And thank you all for listening. Thanks for listening to the Fertility Health Podcast. If there's anything from today's show you want to learn more about, check out the IVFcenter.com for all the notes, links, and tips mentioned in this episode. If you're not already subscribed to the show, Please press the subscribe button on your podcast player so you don't miss a future episode. And if you haven't given us a review or rating on iTunes yet, consider leaving a five-star review to help us reach and educate even more individuals in need. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next episode.